0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: Rising prices hurt. Households are feeling the squeeze as inflation across the rich world hits 6.6% year on year. Companies say workers are demanding higher wages at the worst possible time as all their other costs increase. Governments of all leanings fear that voters will blame them. And central bankers are walking a tightrope as they try to combat surging prices while protecting fragile recoveries. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes, Britain Economics Editor, and this week we're talking about the thing on everyone's minds, inflation. As high price rises persist, could expectations of high inflation become self-fulfilling?
2: Usually there's some optimists, there's some pessimists, some people in the middle. But sometimes you see a group breaking off from the crowd and that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Often that is a reliable signal that something is afoot.
1: What are the data telling us about the battle between workers and firms over wages?
3: If it's a strong labor market, workers see high inflation and they go to their employer and like, I I can't keep up with my bills here. You know, I got a raise last year, but prices are rising faster. I need another raise.
1: And as they reach for all the tools at their disposal, are central banks still in control?
4: The risk now is that those wage pressures grow. And then, you know, you've got companies now saying they do have pricing power. If that's true, then that's really going to force central banks to be much more aggressive than people are expecting.
1: It's a big and gnarly topic. So to help us through it, I have enlisted my counterpart on the other side of the Atlantic, our US economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. Hi, Simon. How are you doing?
5: Doing well, Sumeya. Is is that gnarly like California surfing? Gnarly dude, this is cool.
1: Um, let, let's let's go with probably not. Um, what, what are you working on this week? What's what's keeping you busy?
5: Uh, well, working on a couple projects, but but really the the big thing on, on my mind this week is the big trucker protest back in my hometown of Ottawa. Uh, and I think uh, if nothing else, hopefully uh, more Americans will know that Ottawa and not Toronto is the capital of Canada.
1: One can but dream. Um, and also joining us from San Francisco, our senior economics writer, Callum Williams. Welcome, Callum. How are things with you?
6: Very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's a very nice day here in San Francisco.
1: You've been crunching the numbers on wages this week. Are you going to tell us whether our salaries are going to be keeping up with, with price rises?
6: Uh, well, I think mine will, but I'm not sure about yours because you're in the UK and I'm in America. So it sort of depends on where you are, really. Certainly there are parts of the world where wages are rising pretty strongly, but then there are other parts where they're really not. So the kind of wage price spiral really depends on where you're looking.
1: Well, consider me outraged by that suggestion, Uh, although actually over the past couple of days, we've had some data which hasn't been wonderful. Yesterday, we got the pay growth figures. Today, we got the the latest CPI figures. Consumer prices rose by 5.5% year on year, which was was higher than what was expected by market and the Bank of England, and also higher than, than pay growth. So so all the headlines that we're seeing here in the UK about the cost of living crisis are, are going to continue for a while. But Simon, let, let's look at the US. What's been going on there? How How much higher has inflation been than expectations?
5: Well, I guess the first question is kind of which expectations. So certainly a lot higher than consensus expectations last year that inflation would be sort of petering out by now. Um, uh, but even higher than, than the short-term expectations, obviously people now expect that inflation will be high. You know, even if you look at the most recent numbers from January, uh, still ahead of what the market was, was expecting.
1: Yeah, 7.5% year on year, the highest in 40 years. Whenever I think that UK inflation is high, I only have to look across the pond. So what's been driving that?
5: I mean, you can kind of point to two big things. One is just the amount of stimulus that is still coursing through the economy. So obviously extraordinary fiscal and monetary stimulus to help lift the economy out of the pandemic. And then the other factor is all of the pandemic distortions, which have yet to fully normalize. So a labor force that's not back to normal, above trend goods demand, uh, you know, less demand for services. So those are the two big things and, and still uh, are feeding through into higher prices, higher than I think anybody expected.
1: Callum, you have been looking internationally across rich countries. How is the situation looking in Europe? How broad-based is inflation there and and how much of inflation outturns exceeded expectations?
6: There are certain parts of Europe where inflation is very, very high. So if you go to the Baltics, for example, where they've had some big problems with um, natural gas, inflation is kind of nearing double digits. But that's kind of quite unusual. Across most of the euro area, it's kind of roughly where it is in America, if a bit lower, but there are some countries that kind of weirdly kind of buck the trend. So France, for example, is the one that no one can really explain because inflation is above target, but like not not really that much above target. And so it's kind of a mixed picture, but certainly overall, the impact is not as significant as it is in the States.
1: Yeah, the consensus really does seem to be that America has a worse problem than other countries. And and I think thinking about central banking and and monetary policy makers who who are the ones losing sleep over these high inflation readings, it's really remarkable how quickly opinion has shifted on how far and fast they're going to have to move. One of the first forecasters to increase their estimate of how many times the Fed would have to raise rates this year was Bank of America. And I've been speaking to Ethan Harris, their head of global economics, who made that call.
7: I think central banks are are a little bit behind the curve and a lot behind the curve. When you talk about the United States, the pressure for, particularly the Fed, to start moving, has been building for you know six or nine months now. Um, and in fact, if I were at the Fed, I would have voted for rate hikes in the fall. You know, we're looking for the Fed to hike seven times by twenty-five basis points this year, and four. 25 basis point hikes next year, so it's, there's a long way to go for the Fed. Right now, inflation's running at 7.5% in the United States. It's running at you know 4 or 5% in many developed market economies. I do believe that it will come down on its own. I don't think central banks have to do all the dirty work here. Uh, But again, for countries that are far along in their recovery and that have very low unemployment, like the United States, the Fed has to do some of the dirty work. By contrast, you know, in other countries, I think the problem is much smaller. The drop in inflation from reopening supply chains will do most of the work and central banks don't need to hit the brakes hard.
1: That prediction of seven rate rises in 2022, so that's a total of 1.75 percentage points, that would be the most of any year since 2005. And I suppose the risk is with all of that, that that central banks overcompensate, that they're too aggressive in tightening monetary policy and we get a recession. Do you see that as likely?
7: I don't see that in the near term. Um, look at what's happened in the markets in the last couple months. Um, the Fed has shifted hawkish. They've gone from expanding their balance sheet to slowing it down to announcing that they're going to start shrinking the balance sheet sometime this summer. They've changed pricing in the bond market. And with that change in expectations and that hawkish turn, the impact on markets has been pretty mild. I mean, you've had a, a correction, so, so-called correction, a 10% drop in the equity market. The real concern, I think, comes as you have cumulative hikes. In particular, the big concern comes if the central bank changes its message, right? So right now, none of the central banks are saying we're going to get tough and we're going to really try to hurt the economy. You can't fight inflation without imposing some pain on the economy and markets. So they haven't developed that message yet. The danger comes when they find that they really are not succeeding, that the supply chain re-engagement is not getting inflation down as much as they want. And then at some point, they come out and say, you know what, we're now going to get tough. That kind of shift in message is what creates that recession risk, and that thats that's the thing I worry most about.
1: Do you think that everyone is on the same page here? Do do you think that what central banks say they're going to do matches up with what investors think they're going to do?
7: Yeah, there's always this give and take between the markets and the central banks. And there's always communications issues. Right now, I'd say there are two. In the euro area, the markets have jumped on the idea that the ECB is going to hike rates More than the ECB, I think, is willing to hike. We think they'll hike twice and get interest rates back to zero. But we don't think they're going to go on a real tightening cycle. But the bond markets, I think, overreacted and are now pricing in more hikes in in Europe. And that'll get resolved. In the US, the big debate is whether the Fed starts out of the gate doing a 50 basis point hike, which is something they really would rather not do. Um, They'd love to be able to do a gradual tightening cycle. That's kind of in their DNA to be gradualists and not shock and awe. But the markets are now pricing in a high probability that their first hike will be 50 basis points. So in the coming weeks, we're going to find out whether the Fed protests against this pricing or not. My guess is the Fed will win that battle.
1: Simon, mean, what do you make of this potential mismatch between what the Fed is saying it will do and, and what markets think it will do?
5: If you look at the sort of aggregated wisdom of the market these days, Fed funds futures pricing suggests that there's roughly a 60% plus probability now assigned to the idea that the Fed will kick off its rate uh, increase cycle with, with a 50 basis point move in March. So that's that's quite an aggressive start, I think it's important to highlight just kind of how changeable the market is, how, how quickly that expectation has been ratcheted higher. So if you go back exactly one month ago to this time in January, at that point, the probability of the 50 basis point increase was just 3%. So we've gone from 3% more than 60% in the space of one month. So why does it make sense that the market now is pricing in this 50 basis point increase? Uh, The basic point is that the Fed is remarkably far behind the curve. Uh, If you look at real interest rates, so nominal interest rates adjusted for inflation, they're deeply negative right now, roughly six percentage points negative. So it makes sense for the Fed to begin to to basically claw back some of that lost ground. Uh, And given how deep Negative real interest rates are, even a 50 basis point increase uh, is not going to be, you know, should not be overly damaging for the economy. We've seen that financial markets, obviously, it's been a topsy turvy start to the year, but they've priced in higher interest rates without suffering kind of any cataclysmic sell offs. Um, so that, that's where I think things are now.
1: I think it might be worth setting out some of the context for this because for years, Essentially, the story was that inflation was very low. Inflation expectations were were quite low. You know, central bankers spent a long time thinking that inflation was around the corner and it never quite transpired. And so essentially there were these mistakes that were made repeatedly. And so now the the question is, were they too slow? Were they too eager to fight yesterday's battles um, such that they missed the problem today? I
6: think that is true. I think it is worth remembering. And I think it's easy to forget just how extraordinary the kind of jobs recovery has been and how much better the economy generally is doing today compared with, you know, a year after the financial crisis 12, 13 years ago. So there is this argument, which I do have some sympathy for, which is there's a kind of trade-off really involved in some macro policy. One choice is inflation's under control, but you have very high levels of unemployment and very weak wage growth. And then the other is inflation is not out of control but certainly uncomfortably high but you have much healthier labour markets across the rich world so i think what this reflects really is a is a change of emphasis among central bankers which really did happen within the past few years before the pandemic which is to value much more highly the positive effects of high employment and to be more willing to tolerate the trade-offs that might come with that
1: yeah i mean i guess the 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 point now, though, is that you suddenly have this quite dramatic change in the rhetoric from central banks saying, you know, we we will keep inflation under control, right? You know, one thing that was really striking for the Bank of England in their last meeting, was that four out of the five members voted for a fifty basis point increase in in interest rates? So there's this, almost this this shock and awe tactic of the central bank saying, "You hold it, right? Don't don't let your expectations drift too far upwards. We can contain inflation, and we will do whatever it takes to keep inflation under control."
6: Yeah, that's true. I mean, the th- I think I, I think the Bank of England is, in a sense, a slightly u- it, not unique exactly, but it's it's. It's in this odd position where Britain is very vulnerable to inflationary shocks, basically from via currency depreciations. And, you know, if you go back to what the Bank of England was saying in 2017, 18, when the Brexit depreciation was was having a big impact on inflation back then, they were really hawkish rhetorically and promised all of these rate hikes and that they were, you know, super keen on, on getting inflation down. They actually ended up not really following through with that in terms of actual policy.
1: Yeah, I think the trillion dollar question right now is is how to tell whether the economic dynamics we're seeing now are in some sense benign and inflation will come down on its own, or whether they're not, whether inflation will spiral out of control. Let's go through this step by step. The fear is that people start to expect higher inflation in future. Their inflation expectations increase. And then the worry is that they start demanding higher wages. And then firms start to push up prices. But of course, those higher prices just confirm people's expectations. And that leads to the whole cycle continuing. To start with, let's focus on inflation expectations. There is a debate about how much these matter. One of the economists I've been speaking to is Ricardo Reich. He's just written a study called Losing the Inflation Anchor. Now, he thinks they do matter. Now, when we talk about inflation expectations, there are lots of different types. Investors in financial markets and professional forecasters, all of whom are paid to have views on what inflation will be. And then there are members of the public.
2: Different groups form different expectations. And what the data has shown or taught us is that they seem to matter at different times. In normal times, what we observe is that professionals, chief economists at banks and other forecasters, seem to be more accurate and to lead the people or the households. And yet, when there's large regime changes, we often observe a reversal.
1: At those seismic moments, it's the expectations of ordinary people that start to matter the most. But if you look at surveys of what people think about inflation, they can seem pretty uninformative. The problem is, most people don't pay very close attention to monthly movements in the consumer price index. And based on their lived experience, it can be difficult to get a sense of how prices of everything are changing.
2: Because people tend to be inattentive to some of these aggregate movements like inflation, when you look at the average answer to what you expect inflation to be, you end up with a very sluggish behavior and therefore hard to detect big changes.
1: Ricardo looked deeper to find out if there was anything to learn from the distribution of answers, not just the average. He wondered whether a divergence in the answers that people were giving could tell us something more revealing about shifting expectations.
2: When you start looking at the disagreement in those surveys, that is, do some people expect more than others? And especially, do we start seeing that some people are expecting much higher inflation, therefore a large increase in disagreement, that can often signal, indeed, that there's a change in regime going on. Usually there are some optimists, there are some pessimists, some people in the middle. But sometimes you see a group breaking off from the crowd, and that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And then often that is a reliable signal that something is afoot.
1: American inflation really started spiraling in the 1970s. Ricardo looked at inflation expectations in the years before that, to see if there was any evidence that they were already starting to move.
2: What I show is that using some survey data from the time and the modern techniques that allow us to uncover the disagreement in those surveys, we could have detected that indeed there was a drift in expectations starting in '65 all the way to, say, 1970. And that meant that the inflation anchor was lost by the early 70s so that when the big wind gust of the oil price increase of 1972 came... Inflation went out of control.
1: Ricardo found other examples, too.
2: We have the example of Brazil just 10 years ago. The inflationary pressure started creeping up after 2010-11, even if the measures wouldn't show it on account of price controls being used by the government. And yet you see that people were expecting that inflation was just around the corner. And indeed, it did in 2014-15. And again, it was a group of people that showed so.
1: So if this measure of disagreement can be an early warning sign, the question is, what is happening to current inflation expectations? Are we seeing signs of increasing disagreement on what's happening now?
2: So starting with the data in June, July, August in the surveys, you saw indeed a large increase in disagreement and even an increase in the median. So you are starting to see the signs of a shift in expectations. Again, it is still early though, and given the volatility in these series, they could still come back in the next few months. But certainly the last six months, you start seeing it in the US. Much more, I would say, than in the UK or the Eurozone, where still at most you can see some movements in the last two, three months only. The fact that inflation expectations were already drifting up in the early summer in the United States, it is a clear example where looking at expectations made a big difference and those that were looking at them turned out to be right.
1: Listening to Ricardo, I was really struck by him saying that it is still early, that there are signs of some shift. Inflation expectations have drifted a little bit, but they could come back in in the next few months. And I suppose that's comforting as it means that there is still some time to come back from the edge. But it also raises the worry that this is this is a false alarm. Inflation is high today, but it could come down on its own and central banks don't need to overreact. I mean, this idea that inflation expectations are really, really crucial for telling you what's about to happen to the economy isn't entirely uncontroversial. Simon, have you been following this debate?
5: Well, there's been a a very lively debate, in fact, within the Federal Reserve itself uh, about inflation expectations. It was sparked last year by a terrific paper written by a Fed researcher, Jeremy Rudd, where he basically tried to unpack exactly what inflation expectations are, how they function. Uh, And the conclusion was that we don't really understand that the general assumption is that when people expect um, that inflation will be high, that then is a self-fulfilling prophecy and it leads to higher inflation. But Rudd's point was that maybe the causality is the other way around. And in fact, oftentimes expectations are based on on lived experience. And so when you experience high inflation, that naturally leads you to change the way that you expect prices are going to function. At this point, I'd say you know the overwhelmingly strong possibility is that with, with the Fed acting, inflation will come down, inflation expectations will come down as well. But there has to be this worry that the longer that we experience high inflation, uh, the more that people begin to bake inflation into their wage demands, that companies bake inflation into their price setting, that in itself will, will begin to uh,
6: lead to expectations being unmoored.
1: Callum, have you been looking at any recent evidence on the, on this question of of how important inflation expectations are?
6: So, I mean, there's way more research about America as as there is for everything to do with economics. But the the, the interesting new paper that has come out, which looks at France, is is looking basically at what happens uh, to to firms' wage bills when uh, inflation expectations change. And what's kind of interesting in that case, at least, is that they don't really seem to matter one way or the other. There's not really much of a relationship between what's going on in the macro economy, what people are saying on the news or whatever, and what workers expect in in wages. There's like sort of zero relationship. I mean, I think I think with a lot of these expectations things and a lot of the wage settlements that result, it's not that they don't know what's going on, but it's quite hard for people to kind of say explicitly that, my expectations have changed and therefore I am going to ask for a higher wage bill. It's a quite kind of diffuse and indirect causal mechanism, I think. And that comes across like very, very clearly in this French paper.
1: OK, I think we're straying into the territory of our next topic when, when we're really going to hone in on this question of wages and prices and, and what's happening to those. But before we do that, a reminder that our podcasts are just a taste of The Economist's journalism. And with a subscription, you can read and listen to all of what we do. This week, you will find an incredible investigation of how Russia is trying to build its own great firewall and separate its tech sector from the West. And you can find out exactly what a Decker corn is. And you might think that surely there is a better name for the new kings of the startup world. All that and more at economist.com. You'll find the best offer at slash podcast offer. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
7: We do need to see a you know, moderation of wage rises. Now that's painful.
1: Earlier this month, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, risked the wrath of the millions by suggesting that workers should rein in their wage demands to do their bit in the fight against inflation.
7: If we let that sort of process, you know, rip as it were, we're never we're not gonna solve the problem and it's gonna get much worse for people.
1: In rather less strident terms, Both Fed Chair Jerome Powell and Christine Lagarde of the ECB have acknowledged the same concern.
7: If price pressures feed through into higher-than-anticipated wage rises,
0: persistent real wage growth in excess of productivity could put upward pressure on inflation.
1: Are central bankers right to worry that rising wages could make inflation worse?
4: Economists have this this kind of natural psychological issue about wage price spirals, you know, and and whenever we see an increase in oil prices, this is the the thing that economists worry about. And I think central banks are particularly prone to that.
1: That's Dario Perkins. He's head macroeconomist at the research firm T.S. Lombard.
4: Central banks have this thing where they believe their own hype when it comes to inflation. I think that central banks take a lot of credit amongst themselves for the fact that inflation has been low for the last 30 years. And they think that it's their role in anchoring inflation expectations that delivered that low inflation. And they're always concerned that the 1970s is going to come back.
1: And in America, 2022 did indeed begin with what looked like a retro 70s throwback. Consumer prices up by 7.5% and wages up 5.7% on a year earlier. But it takes more than that for a true wage price spiral to materialise.
4: We haven't seen a wage price spiral since the 1970s. You look at every episode since then where we've had a sudden spike in inflation, maybe because of energy prices. It's always been a squeeze, and I think that '70s dynamic was really about this this kind of conflict between labour and capital. You know, we had this this situation where we had powerful trade unions, we had young, militant workforce, we had companies that didn't have to worry about global markets, and so you basically had this conflict that lasted, the, you know, the best part of fifteen years about who would pay for what was essentially a slowdown in productivity. And, you know, because we spent the last 30 years destroying labour power and globalising markets, we've just never seen those dynamics again.
1: If you want to argue that we are not on the brink of a wage price spiral, you have to show that at some point soon, both inflation and wages will decelerate. And right now, there is clearly upward pressure on wages in America.
3: The labour market is, is tight. You know, it's a seller's market. You know, you were seeing workers being able to command higher wages across a number of industries.
1: Julia Coronado runs Macro Policy Perspectives, a consultancy.
3: A lot of the tightness was most concentrated at the lower wage end of the earning spectrum. So lower-wage workers were the workers that are needed to reopen restaurants in the leisure and hospitality sector, but they're also the workers that got hired by the goods delivery companies, the Amazons and the other companies. So there's not enough of them. So we still have labor force participation, even among younger workers, prime-age workers, 25 to 54, that's way below where it was pre-pandemic. So we're seeing a lot of tightness.
1: Firms seeing higher wage bills can either raise prices and preserve their profits or absorb them in the form of squeezed margins. The question for now is how closely the high inflation that we're seeing is linked to the tight labour market. Are the higher wage demands driving inflation today?
4: Just in terms of the arithmetic, in the US you can say that 70% of the increase in inflation has come from a margins expansion.
1: Dario just put out some research suggesting that those industries with the fastest wage increases in the US are not the ones with the biggest price increases. It looks like companies are mainly increasing their profit margins.
4: So most of it has come from margins going up. The money that governments have put into their economy was always going to find its way into corporate profits. The issue in the US is it's the combination of high profits and high inflation. And so you're seeing this margins expansion in the US, which hasn't really happened in
1: other parts of the world. Julia Coronado says that's because consumers were willing to pay.
3: One thing we saw before the pandemic was that even when the labour market was great and wages were rising, consumers remained very price sensitive and very budget conscious. And, And so firms did not have pricing power. It was difficult even at the peak of the cycle for firms to pass along higher prices. And then all of that changed during the pandemic. So one of the questions is why. And what we think we've learned is that when you give most consumers a lot of cash in, directly into their bank accounts, and they what they can spend on is narrow, so they just order goods. You know, consumers were just willing to pay whatever it cost
1: It sounds obvious, but for inflation to stop rising, companies need to stop raising their prices. And if consumers become more sensitive to higher prices, that could do the trick. There may be some isolated signs that this is already happening.
3: The consumer inflation report for January was pretty bad in a lot of ways. But car prices were good news. So new car prices, we saw new car sales rise in January. We saw new car prices were flat in January, even though inventories are lean. It's a very competitive consumer market. Same on the used cars. They kept rising, but at a much slower pace, that demand is becoming a little bit more price sensitive.
1: But just because we're not seeing higher wages contributing to higher prices now, it doesn't mean that they won't in future.
3: If it's a strong labor market, and this is the concern, strong labor market Workers see high inflation and they go to their employer and like, I I can't keep up with my my bills here. You know, I got a raise last year, but, but prices are rising faster. I need another raise. Then you could see more of a direct link between wages and prices.
1: And if that happens, monetary policymakers will step in.
4: You know, I still think inflation is transitory, even though that's a word you can't use in polite company anymore. And I think probably profit margins are transitory too. I guess the risk to that now is that, you know, labour markets have tightened, those wage pressures grow. And then, you know, you've got companies now saying they do have pricing power. Now, if that's true, and I I really doubt that it is, but if they do, then that's really going to force central banks to be much more aggressive than people are expecting.
1: Callum, most of what we've just spoken about has been about the US, but you've been looking across the rich world. How similar are the wage price dynamics in other places?
6: I would cautiously say not that similar, actually. So the way I've been sort of thinking about it is that there's two legs to the, to the spiral. So the first leg is our wages going up. And in most other rich countries, they're not really. So in Japan, for instance, wage growth seems to be slowing rather than accelerating, Places like Australia, it's way lower than it was before the pandemic. And then in the euro area, it's not far above where it was before the pandemic. And the second bit of the leg is our wage increases of, of whatever sort feeding into prices. And it's not a totally clean way of doing it, but I don't think it's bad. One way of looking at it is to look at basically what's happening to services prices In those countries because services are like disproportionately composed of labour costs. But in in basically all countries, with a few exceptions, like some places in Eastern Europe, services prices just really aren't doing that much. Certainly in Europe, there really isn't a whole lot of evidence yet of of a wage price spiral.
1: Simon, do you think the whole way that people talk about wage-price spirals is misleading? Should, should it be a price-wage spiral or, or maybe um, maybe a margins-price-wage-price? Price, I, I don't know. I could go on forever. Um, a, a spiral of, of many, many words.
5: <laughs> I, I don't know if it's necessarily misleading. I just think that, that the conditions that are necessary for a wage-price spiral to truly take root are pretty extreme, and six months of of significantly above-trend inflation, followed by a very aggressive Fed, you know, much more aggressive than, than what people expected a few months ago, should in America at least, I think, be sufficient to ensure that we're not going to have a 1970s-style wage price spiral taking effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess quite aggressive behavior from the Fed combined with... All this uncertainty about how quickly inflation is going to fall suggests that there are quite a lot of risks looking forward, right? The, the main one being that central banks are essentially too aggressive and that they tighten too quickly. And, and actually, if they hadn't done that, inflation would have come down on its own. How, how do you see the risk of that happening?
5: Well, I think objectively, that's true. If you look at the historical record, since the Second World War, there's been roughly 15 different tightening cycles in America nine of them have, have ended in recession. So you could say basically at the start of a tightening cycle that there's kind of a two in three chance that, yeah, America um, is going to land itself into a recession. You know, the, the classic metaphor from Milton Friedman, you know, when he talks about monetary policy, the, the jargony way of, of of describing it is the long and variable lags of, of policy, basically that it takes a long time for monetary policy to actually feed through into the economy. The less jargony way Um, that he put it, supposedly, was this idea of the fool in the shower. The shower is running way too hot, so you turn the taps cold, and it takes a little bit of time before you realize that, you know, my God, they've been set way too cold. And I think right now there is a real risk that the Fed is significantly behind the curve, but all of the uncertainty that stems from the pandemic has not gone away. And so if the Fed does tighten too aggressively, maybe Jerome Powell will look like the fool in the shower in a year's time.
6: I think there is a tendency among some central bankers to sort of confuse sort of structural inflationary trends with one-off shocks. And so when I say that, I'm thinking, particularly of what the, what happened with the Bank of England in 2017-18. In, in the Economist argued at the time quite strongly against the idea of the bank raising rates. The bank's argument at the time was that something had changed about the UK economy such that inflation was much more likely to emerge at a given level of economic output than was the case before. Whereas actually what was really going on is that the pound had depreciated by you know, 15% against other currencies. And that was making imports more expensive, and that was causing inflation. So it was like a one off shock. And I think it is worth considering the argument that the central bankers are confusing a one off shock. So shutdowns in factories in in, in Asia because of Delta and Omicron, with a situation where something structural has changed about the economy such that higher rates are required. So that's the big uncertainty that I'm not sure about at the moment. I mean, just
5: to bring it back to America for a second. So obviously it's easy to say there's a lot of uncertainty and to to wave our hands at it. I think it's kind of helpful to try to kind of quantify what the degree of uncertainty actually is. There's this old rule of thumb for for how high interest rates should be, um, known as the Taylor Rule, which basically looks at how high inflation is uh, and what the gap with economic potential growth is. You know, if you apply the Taylor Rule strictly today, it would suggest that interest rates, the Fed, the federal funds rate in America, should be about seven percent. Now, I don't think anybody is calling for the Fed to raise rates to seven percent, but I think it does therefore begin to show you the the scale of uncertainty that you know the Fed is right now sitting on zero, uh, and it could, according to the Taylor rule, be as high as seven percent. You know, what is the right level of interest rates? Well. It's somewhere in between. But, you know, is that 1% or 2% or maybe even 3 or 4%? It's, I think, relative to the normal parameters of monetary policy of the last three decades. That scale of uncertainty is unusually large. And getting it right is, is going to be a great challenge.
1: What extraordinary times we do live in, but lots of exciting stuff to write about, I suppose. Simon, Callum, thanks so much for joining me.
5: Thanks, Samia. Thank you, Samia. Go fight for your pay raise now.
1: Well, exactly. <laughs> I, I will get on that. Our thanks, too, to Ethan Harris, Ricardo Reich, Julia Coronado, and Dario Perkins. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If we met your expectations, or if we didn't, please take a moment to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcasts at or tweet us at economist pods. The producer was Amika Shortino Nolan, Nico Raufast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Samaya Keynes, and in London, this is The Economist.